Um, so I wonder how easy you find decision-making. You find decision-making easy? Um, I, I think we often find it difficult, don't we? Um, uh, I was reading in the week a, a pretty recent study, I think it might have been August this year, so a very, very recent study, that reckoned that adults spend an average of about three hours a day making decisions on things like uh, what food to eat, uh, what clothes to wear, uh, what, what TV to watch, um, whether to buy something or not, that, that kind of thing. In fact, they reckon that we make an average of 122 informed choices every day. That's quite something, isn't it? And that we often change our minds at least twice for every decision. <laughs> I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and, and they're not even the big decisions of life, are they? You know, like what job are we going to do or who do we marry or where do we live and that, that kind of thing. So it's hardly surprising that with that sort of multitude of decisions to make, that whether we're Christians or not, um, we feel the need for help. In, in that area, don't we? The, the study that I mentioned discovered that, that many people look for, uh, for guidance from people who have had similar experiences to them um, or, or from people that they feel they can trust um, or, or who they perceive have wisdom, like, like their parents. Not sure about that one, but anyway, uh, or, their, or, their, or their friends, <laughs> just going from my own experience. Um, <laughs> uh, but of course, others look for guidance, don't they, in some pretty weird places. They look in horoscopes and tea leaves and that kind of thing. Um, but, but of course, Christians understand that we need to look to God for guidance, don't we? But even then, I, I think we can often get confused about how exactly God guides, which can lead us down some uh, frankly bizarre roads to decision making it, it seems to me I, I remember a, a couple who came to talk to me some years ago different church uh, uh, about getting married they, they were convinced that God had told them the date that they should get married on because it was the sell-by date on the bag of crisps that they were eating when they were making the decision right I think that's I think that's bizarre um, <laughs> now, now of course uh, the, the wise Christian uh, the wise Christian understands that the key to making spirit-led decisions is to make biblically informed decisions. Okay, as, as Paul puts it, all scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God's spirit. And amongst other things, its purpose is to make us thoroughly equipped for every good work. So very often, it's not so much guidance that we need, it's obedience that we need. But what about when the Bible tells us that we're free to choose? What about when we face those multitude of decisions that, that we do, which, which are not about right or wrong? Uh, they're decisions where, where either choice is a good choice. Um, now, I think in those situations, we often want God to give us a bit of direct and specific guidance, don't we? So, so exactly which of these two jobs or houses or whatever it is, is your will for me? God, which is the one? In other words, we think that it's God's role to make the decision, and it's our role to try and discover what God's decision is, and then hope that we don't get it wrong. I think that's quite a paralyzing approach to guidance, to be honest. Of course, there are examples, aren't there, in the scripture where God does give direct guidance, but I'd suggest it's not the normal pattern that scripture gives us at all. Rather, if you, if you have a read through the, the New Testament, uh, I think we see that the early Christians understood perfectly well that God gives us freedom to choose in, in those areas where his word is clear and that our task is not so much to seek God's direct guidance as it is to seek God's help 
to make wise choices. Uh, Here's how a theologian guy called Jim Packer, you might have come across, here's how he puts it. He said, the inward experience of being divinely guided is not ordinarily one of seeing signs or hearing voices, but rather one of being enabled to work out the best thing to do. And what we've got here in in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is, is Paul instructing the Corinthian church about how to make decisions in some specific matters that were within that area of Christian freedom. And and as we'll see, he's not telling them what to do, but he's teaching them some principles to help them make godly and wise decisions. So we're going to have a look over the next three weeks um, at these chapters. And and as we begin, we we need to bear in mind, if if we didn't realize this already, that Paul is writing to a very worldly local church. The, the, The Corinthian society, actually a lot like 21st century Western society as well. Corinthian society was wealthy, it was cosmopolitan, it was multicultural, it was multi-faith. And so it was full of different worldviews, different religions. And again, like a lot of Western society, it was also a culture swimming in self-indulgence, you know, in, in sexual promiscuity, in money, entertainment, success, pleasure, all of that stuff. And into that kind of environment, Paul had planted a church some three or four years earlier. And he's writing to them now because although there are genuine believers in Corinth, he makes that clear at the beginning of his letter, his, his issue with them is that they've imbibed too much of the world into the church. In, in other words, the, the, the attitudes, the priorities, the behavior of the society around them has been allowed to leach into the church as well. And and feeding their worldly attitudes and worldly behavior was a worldly and therefore a defective gospel. Because, of course, if you preach a worldly gospel, it won't be long before you have a worldly church. And so he tackles that first in chapters 1 to 2 by reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them. And and then in the remaining chapters, what he's doing is he's showing them what gospel-shaped living should really look like. And he he tackles them on their worldly view of leadership in in chapters 3 and 4. He tackles them on their worldly view of holiness and and particularly sexual holiness in chapters 5 to 7. And then here in chapters 8 to 10, he's tackling them on their worldly view of how they relate to the kind of multi-faith, idol-worshipping society that's all around them. If, if it's the gospel and not the world that sets the agenda, then what does that mean for how they relate to the idol worship that's going on all around them? Um, and as you probably noticed in, in today's passage, the issue is about food that has been sacrificed to those idols. In other words, can I eat it? Is it, is it okay? Should I do that? And that's not an insignificant uh, uh, issue for them because, of course, um, I don't know whether you knew this or not, but do you know they didn't have freezers in the ancient world? Who knew? Um, but, of course, that meant that meat was hard to store. Uh, and so long-term storage was about keeping the animal alive <laughs> um, uh, and, until you needed it. And then when you did kill it, it would usually need to serve multiple functions at the same time. So, for example, it, it, it served a religious function uh, as the animal was sacrificed in one, to one of the local deities. And it would serve a social and a business function as well because they'd have a bit of a barbecue afterwards in the, in the local pagan temple. So, so temples in, in those days effectively functioned as kind of like restaurants 
uh, in that culture where it was where the networking was done. It was where you kind of hobnobbed with the influencers of Corinthian society. It was where you got your business done. And then the meat served a commercial function as well because any leftovers would then be sold in the local market. In other words, it was virtually impossible to buy any meat that had not been sacrificed to idols. And and certainly, if you wanted to enjoy the lifestyle of Corinth, you had to go into the pagan temples and eat the food. So the question was, were Christians free to eat it? Now, I don't know if your eyes are glazing over by now. I'm not surprised because that's not exactly a contemporary issue for us uh, today, is it? But I, I think Paul's teaching actually here is very contemporary, not because we might be faced with the same dilemma, but because as Christians today, we are faced with the same kinds of dilemmas. Dilemmas where gospel principles, the ones that Paul lays down here, I think are very helpful. Okay, Uh, Because this is about gospel rights and freedoms, isn't it? It's about the freedoms that the gospel allows me. Uh, For example, um, I'm invited to a party. Okay, I know there's going to be a ton of drink in circulation. It's likely that some people there are going to get very drunk indeed. Should I go? Uh, or a non-Christian friend has, has asked me to go and see a film with them at the cinema. It's supposed to be a very thought-provoking film, but actually its values are profoundly hostile to, to the Christian faith. And on top of that, there's a ton of offensive language in it as well. Should I go? Those are similar questions to the ones that the Corinthians are facing here, aren't they? I've been invited for a night out at the temple barbecue. Should I go? My mother-in-law's coming for Sunday lunch. Am I free to get a joint from the market? And and what makes this passage so helpful, I think, is that Paul doesn't just answer their immediate question, you know, with a sort of simplistic, oh, yeah, you can do that, or no, no, you shouldn't do that. He, He doesn't say that, but rather he brings the implications of the gospel to bear on, on, on their question. He, he shows them the, the, the timeless gospel principles that will help them with their questions and also help us with our similar questions. And here's the principle, look, in verses 1 to 6, the first kind of principle that he's got for us. Gospel love is greater than knowledge. Gospel love is greater than knowledge. Because if you look at verse 1, look, it, it seems a bit of a weird verse, doesn't it? He says, now concerning food offered to idols, but then he seems to go off on a tangent almost straight away and starts talking about knowledge that puffs up and love that builds up. What's all that about? Well, it's not a digression, but rather it's an underlying principle that is vital to the rest of his argument. So he says, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. And, and you'll see that that's in speech marks, a quotation, so it's probably a saying that, that they used themselves. We, we all possess knowledge, they would say, meaning knowledge about God, spiritual knowledge, theological knowledge, uh, if you like. But by which they mean, we, we know what we're free to do. You know, we, we know the, the morality and the behavior that we ought to have. We know our gospel rights and our freedoms. And, and Paul agrees with them. Yes, we all possess knowledge. But he he warns them that spiritual knowledge is not actually the main issue. And and he exposes the fact that although they might have some correct gospel knowledge, they're demonstrating nothing like a correct gospel attitude. So he can agree, yes, we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. 
And the word translated puffs up there, it's talking about being puffed up with spiritual pride, if you like, which is something actually the Corinthians were kind of full of. So the contrast here is not between knowledge by itself and love by itself. It's a contrast between knowledge without love and knowledge with love. Or knowledge by itself versus knowledge combined with love, do you see? And, and his point is that knowledge by itself just leads to pride. It, it, it gives people a, a kind of an inflated view of themselves, a feeling of superiority and power over others, you know, who, who don't have the knowledge that we have. And, and the same is true of spiritual knowledge. You know, those who know their Bibles better can be especially prone to spiritual pride. And that spiritual pride actually affects the quality of, of their knowledge. In, in other words, the presence of love changes the quality of our spiritual knowledge. And it therefore changes the conclusions that we'll come to about what is right or wrong behavior. Do do, do you see the point? Even if someone's Bible knowledge on a certain point is correct, their lack of love can make their knowledge deeply flawed. And so the morality from that, quite misleading. And so whilst knowledge is important, if it's a kind of loveless expertise in the morality of the Bible, you know, that's more about making me look good than it is about loving and building up others, well, then it may not be the true gospel knowledge that we think it is. Verse 2, he imagines that he knows something, but he doesn't yet know as he ought to know. In other words, if a person thinks that he's knowledgeable, oh yeah, I'm knowledgeable it's likely that he isn't really that knowledgeable at all in the gospel sense. He might know some true things about God, but his lack of love shows up the fact that he doesn't really know God personally. And there's a world of difference, isn't there, between someone who knows some true things about God and someone who knows God personally through the Lord Jesus. And the kind of true gospel knowledge that grows out of knowing God personally That's knowledge with love. And that love builds up. That love puts others first. That love strengthens and encourages others in the faith. That love puts its knowledge to work in the service of others, not in the service of self. Because, verse 3, that love realizes that the knowledge that really counts is now our knowledge about God, but his knowledge of us. It's, it's far more important that God knows us and, and counts us as his children through faith in Christ than that we know about God. You know, it's like those uh, rather chilling verses in Matthew 7, isn't it, where Jesus explains that there'll be many people who will face him on the day of judgment And hear him say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. It's him knowing us through the gospel that is of much greater importance than what we know about him. And those with true gospel knowledge, they they understand this and it drives them therefore to humility, not to pride. And so to building up others, not to to self-inflation. Do you see the point? True gospel knowledge leads to true gospel behavior. That's the point. Not to pride that puffs up ourselves, 
but to a humble love that builds up others. And then what he does look in verses 4 to 6 is, is outline the, the knowledge on, on which the Corinthians were basing their behavior. And, and notice that the decisions they took about eating food sacrificed to idols were based on some biblical knowledge which, which Paul agrees with. Look at uh, verse 4. Um, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may, there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, uh, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, so he's saying we all know, he's saying you, you and me alike, we all know that there's no reality behind all of these idols, They're just lumps of wood and stone. There's no actual gods behind them because there is only one God. Which, of course, friends, is what God says about himself, isn't it? Uh, Is it Isaiah 45? I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other. There are no other deities but the God of the Bible. And, And Paul and the Corinthians, they agree on that. The God of the Bible is the one and only God. He's the mighty creator, verse 6, of of the whole universe. He's the Father from whom are all things. And and this one God is the God revealed by Jesus Christ, verse 6 again. In other words, it's the God of the Bible that is the one true God. The God where the Father is the one from whom are all things. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one through whom are all things. It's that God. The Christian God, alone, that is the one true God. Of course, verse 5, there are lots of things that people worship as gods, but they aren't real. Only God is real. So Paul's agreeing with their their knowledge. They all agree on that. But the problem is that the Corinthians are using this knowledge as the basis for doing what they want to do. Okay, since, uh, since the idols are nothing, we can eat the meat that's sacrificed to them. Since the idols are nothing, we can have our night out in the temple. Since the idols are nothing, we can even take part in the temple rituals. And there's a hint in chapter 10 uh, that they were doing just that. So, so the, the true knowledge that God alone is God has led the Corinthians to think this means we can do what we like. When it it comes to the idols, we can eat the meat, we can go into the temples, you know, it's all good. Well, that knowledge is true, says Paul, and it means we are free to eat what we like. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Verse 7, it's not sinful to eat it, it's an irrelevancy. But Paul has got something else to add to their knowledge here, which needs to impact how they behave in in this matter. Have a look at verse 6 again. There is one God and Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So his point here is that we don't only exist because of God, but we exist for God. We exist for God and through Jesus. In other words, our ultimate purpose as people created by God is to live for God. In other words, for for his glory, for for the honor of his name. 
And because we're sinners, that the, only, the, the only possible way to do that is through the atoning death of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Do you see? We exist for God and through Jesus. And that has implications for how we exercise our, our gospel rights and freedoms. Because it means that the Corinthians should not be motivated simply by what suits them, what, what they're free to do, but by what brings glory to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, it's, like when your, it's like when your teenage son or daughter says to you, I'd really like to go to my, my mate's house on, on Saturday. Uh, Dad, do you think you could pick me up at, uh, from there about half past ten? And, and you, being the loving parent that you are, you say, oh, do I have to? Uh, I'll I, I watch Match of the Day on, on Saturday night. To which they reply, being the loving teenagers that they are, okay, Dad, I'll, I'll, I'll get the bus. Okay, so knowledge there means you're now free to watch Match of the Day, right? Because they, they've informed you that they will get the bus. Yeah? But uh, that's not quite the end of it, is it? Because at some point, you're going to start thinking to yourself, oh, come on. You know, you, you love your kids. You, you know it would be the loving thing to do, to just give up watching the footy and, and do this small thing for them and, and just an, another way of serving them and loving them. You can see where this is going, can't you? See, the kind of, of loving, sorry, the kind of living that is consistent with our ultimate purpose of living for God through Jesus is never living that's simply based on knowledge alone, but always on knowledge with love. Knowledge with the true gospel love that is modelled in Christ and that we can only model through Christ and that ultimately brings glory to God, which is our reason for existence. And, and do you see the challenge there for us? It, it can never be right, can it, for a Christian to insist on exercising his or her gospel rights and freedoms simply on the basis of knowledge divorced from love. In, in other words, to, to exercise it irrespective of, of its effects on other people. That's not the way of love, is it? That's not Christ's way. That's not the way that shows up we're living for God through Jesus. It's, it's the way that, that, that shows we're using our knowledge to justify living for ourselves, doing what we want. It's another example, friends, of, of why we need the gospel, isn't it? Not just to save us, but to grow us, to grow us in maturity. It's why we need to keep preaching it to each other. Because when we keep hearing that the one true God whom we exist to live for has wonderfully saved us through the Lord Jesus who gave up his freedoms in order to die in our place on the cross, well, that is going to challenge us about our insistence on exercising our freedoms, isn't it? Because we'll see that it's not about how far can I push my freedoms or what will this let me get away with? But rather, it's about what will bring glory to God's name. What will point to Jesus Christ. So that's the underlying principle there. That it's, it, it's vital for what he's going to unpack in the rest of chapters 8 to 10. Gospel love is greater than knowledge. 
And, and in the rest of this chapter, verses 7 to 13, he kind of brings that principle to bear on a, on a specific case where, where a Christian might choose to give up his gospel freedoms. And that is in the case of a fellow Christian whose conscience is weak. Okay, And his point here is that love for others is greater than rights. Love for others is greater than rights. Have a look at verse 7, where, where, where he, he makes the point that when it comes to knowledge, you know, the knowledge that there's only one God, and, and that, that all of those false gods that they used to worship, they're just not real, they're, 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 they're an irrelevance. He says, not all possess this knowledge. In other words, not every Christian realizes that. And, and we might think, well, you know, surely every Christian ought to realize that, didn't they? It's, it's basic stuff. But just put yourself in the shoes of a young Christian in Corinth. Okay, you've, you've been converted out of a life of idol worship, where, where your whole existence was shaped around the pagan worship in the temples and, and all of their gods. Your parents brought you up never to question the reality of all of those gods. And, and all your friends and peers, they believe it too. So you may now, in coming to faith in Christ, you may now come to have understood that these pagan gods are false gods who don't even exist. But you've still got the baggage of a lifetime of pagan religious practice to shake off. And it takes time. So for these people, every time they eat a piece of food that they know has come from one of the temples, they associate it with the pagan idolatry that they've left behind. And so they find themselves unable to eat it with a clear conscience. That's what the second half of verse 7 is saying, isn't it? But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. In other words, they can't disassociate the meat from the old pagan worship. And Paul describes this as them having a, a conscience, in other words, an, an understanding of how the gospel affects their living, that is a weak understanding. So he, he doesn't dispute the fact that they don't need to feel this, you know, that they feel it because of a weak conscience, but he doesn't rebuke them for it either. Rather, his point is to say, because their conscience is weak, because as, as young Christians from a pagan background, they still can't help thinking that to eat temple meat is wrong, then to, then to make them eat it, to entice them to eat it, to, to pressure them in some way into acting against their conscience would be to help them defile their conscience. Do, do you see? Paul, Paul's very clear, look, verse 8, that to abstain from eating meat is not necessary to, to, to please God. To abstain from eating temple meat is, is not necessary to please God. You're no worse off if you don't eat it, no better off if you do. It's an irrelevance. You can do what you like. And he does say that those who do think it right to abstain have a weaker conscience. They are seeing something as wrong that is not, in fact, wrong. But whether or not they're right to feel that way is not the point. They do. And so the Corinthians need to recognize that the loving thing to do is not to insist or pressure or, or tempt them to go against their conscience by, but by eating that stuff. That's not going to build them up, is it? because it's going to be encouraging them to ignore their conscience. And that's a much more serious matter than whether someone eats temple meat or not. So yes, their conscience may be weak, but it should still be honoured. 
And he says this even more clearly, look in verse 9, where he tells them that it's, it's possible for them to exercise their gospel freedoms in such a way as to make them a stumbling block to the weak. And, and in verse 10, he kind of pictures such a person, a person so convinced about his rights and freedoms, so keen to exercise them, that he's not just going to buy some temple meat, he's going to go into the temple itself and eat it there. Which, which we might think sounds like someone with a strong conscience, you know, a mature Christian who, who knows his, his, his gospel rights and, and freedoms that they bring. But, but, but Paul says, no, no, hold on a minute. That might be fine for him. But what about if a weaker Christian sees him doing that and that encourages him to do the same? Something which for him would be to go against his conscience, to, to sin, therefore. Do, do, do you see? In, in that scenario, the weaker Christian has ended up doing something which for him is sinful because he's been led into it by the behavior of the stronger Christian. And Paul's assessment of that look, verse 11, is that by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed. In, in other words, the, the insistence upon exercising your freedoms could send this guy into a spiral of sin that could put him on a road to spiritual ruin. Something that ought to be of enormous importance to us because Christ died for such weaker Christians, verse 11. They too are precious to him. Indeed, Christ gave up his rights to save such weaker Christians. So our failure to give up our rights for them, well, that can hardly be considered Christ-like, can it? Do, do, do you see, friends? You know, we, we saw at the beginning, didn't we, that, that although we don't need to make those kind of decisions over food sacrificed to idols, we are faced with a multitude of similar decisions, aren't we? You know, modern equivalents might be around the use of alcohol or it might be about, you know, going, going clubbing or that kind of thing. Um, you know, some Christians will want to assert their freedoms in that regard. You know, there's, there's plenty of dancing, plenty of drink in the Bible. You know, there, there should be no prohibition on Christians enjoying those things, so why shouldn't I? And, and other Christians will say, well, what about, the, what about the culture of drunkenness there? What about the drug taking? What about the one-night stand culture? Aren't you condoning those things just by going there? Or, or don't you risk being seduced by those things yourself? And so when it comes to making decisions about those things, the way we tend to, to make them is in a very individualistic way, isn't it? You know, well, you do what you think is right, and I'll do what I think is right. But verse 11 challenges that thinking. So, so does it matter if I entice or bully or cajole or pester a weaker brother to follow me into something that I am free to do but he thinks he's not free to do yes does that matter yes it does because it's causing him to go against his conscience and and so to sin which may even take him on a path to his own destruction and that matters because he's a brother for whom Christ died and it's me or you insisting on exercising our freedoms that's led him into sin Do you see, the point here, friends, is that we are not just responsible for ourselves in these matters. You notice Paul's conclusion in verse 12. In sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. In other words, to to despise a fellow Christian's weaker conscience, to kind of trample all over it, 
in our insistence on exercising our rights and freedoms, no matter what it does to them, we not only sin against our brother, we sin against Christ himself. Do do you see? That the principle here is not, oh, those weaker Christians should just kind of grow up and recognize the freedoms the gospel gives them. No. The principle is those weaker Christians are going to really struggle to do that, so let's look after them. And let's make sure we don't cause them to go against their conscience or be tempted to fall away. Or or, or to put it another way, the principle is not know your gospel rights and freedoms so that you can exercise them. But rather the principle is know your gospel rights and freedoms so that you can give them up for the love of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see? And friends, I, I think it's there where that passage might especially challenge us. Because I, I think as Christians, you know, we're used, to, we're used to watching out for how our behavior impacts non-Christians around us, don't we? And we're used to watching out for situations which might lead us into sin. But because our culture is particularly individualistic these days, we can be easily tempted to think, these are my gospel rights. No one's going to stop me from exercising the freedoms that are mine in, in Christ. You know, Freddie might be a strict teetotaler, but that's his problem. It's not going to stop me from serving wine at my party when he's there. It's, it's, that's his problem. That's not gospel thinking, though, is it? Because what do we think the Lord Jesus did for us? Verse 11 reminds us, Christians are people for whom Christ died. So what did he do for us if it wasn't to give up all the rights of being God, all the freedoms of heaven? in order to be born into poverty and live a life of suffering and and mockery before finally dying a death of abandonment with the wrath of his father poured out on him instead of you and me as he hung on a cross. And what does he do for us now if it's not to patiently bear with all of our weaknesses and our failures? Our failure to trust him again and again, even though he's lovingly told us and repeatedly shown us how faithful and trustworthy he is. What does Jesus do for us now if it's not to daily forgive us and care for us and intercede for us and order all things for our good? Friends, Christ doesn't deal with us with a love. uh, 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 Sorry, doesn't Christ deal with us with a love that's greater than his rights, doesn't he? Of course he does. Well, then how can we refuse to give up our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters? It's a key area, I think, where, where the church is to be different from the world around us. You know, in the world, it's, it's every man for himself, isn't it? But the church, it's about bearing with one another's burdens. Which means that whether it's in the big decisions of life, or just in the small everyday ones, Christ calls us to have knowledge of our gospel rights and freedoms, not so that we can exercise them, but so that we can be prepared to give them up and not out of duty, but out of love. And that's because the church carries a message of a saviour whose love for people caused him to give up his rights and freedoms to the very point of his death. And as we proclaim that message to the world, they need to see a church in which we model that as we give up our freedoms 
for one another. Should we pray about that together? Ask for God's help. Father, we thank you for the, um, well, the challenging teaching of this passage, that when it comes to the, the, the rights, the freedoms that the gospel gives us, that it's not our exercising of them that, it, that is so important, but it's our willingness to give them up for the sake of one another. And, and so we pray that in the, uh, in the many decisions of life, both, both big and small, where we're free to choose but called to exercise wisdom, that you would help us to be those um, ready to follow the example of the Lord Jesus, who, who gave up all the rights and privileges of heaven in order to make us his brothers and sisters. And all of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.